0: Today on the first 40 kilometers, we discussed the metric lifestyle and how it applies to backpackers and bushwhackers. Then, as promised in episode 68, you'll learn the top five reasons to carry a hydration bladder. What? Next on the Summit Gear Review, a pair of shoes that provide the perfect climate for your feet. Then on today's backpack hack of the week, We get a little bit sappy. Aww. Then we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Henry David Thoreau. All this, and that's about it, today on The First 40 Kilometers.
1: We're the first 40 kilometers?
0: Yeah, metric is in, metric is hip. Where have you been?
1: Changing with the times, huh?
0: Yeah, we're changing with the times. We're going to the first 40 kilometers because metric is cool. There's a a movement, the metric movement, the metric lifestyle, you may have heard it called. People are moving toward metric. And I think backpackers started this movement. I mean, think about it. We call people who are ultralight backpackers, gram weenies kind of a derogatory term, but I think they don't view it that way. They probably view it as like a you know, badge of honor. Before
1: I got back into backpacking two years ago, the last pack I had purchased was 20 years old, 25 years old, and everything was cubic inches back then. And so one of the very first challenges I had when I went out to buy a pack a couple of years ago was figuring out how big of a pack I needed compared to the pack that I had 25 years ago. I had to actually, you know, like do the translation to figure it out.
0: Yeah, everything is measured in liters now. Water treatment is measured in liters. Are there uh, benefits to going metric?
1: 88% of our listeners are in the U.S., and the other 12% are probably listening to this and just scratching their heads thinking, what is wrong with that country? (laughs) You know, besides their politics, (laughs) what is wrong?
0: Well, then are backpackers on the forefront of helping America switch to metric?
1: I think every technical activity probably is. I mean, scientists do everything in metric and uh, other technical fields uh healthcare a lot of measurements in healthcare are metric. and backpacking is one of those things that has some technical aspects to it.
0: well, certainly with metric measurements, you can get a lot more precise.
1: well, you can get precise with. Uh, american measurements too it's just that for example a 32nd of an ounce is precise but it's almost impossible to calculate when you want to you know to go bigger or smaller multiplying things by 32 and dividing by 32 is just not real um doesn't come naturally
0: metric does flow a little more naturally like uh divide by 10 multiply by 10 and yeah it makes a lot of sense it's not something that I'm really used to although I had a a teacher who really loved the metric system in fact she didn't call centimeters centimeters she called them centimeters I don't know why she didn't have a British accent but she called them sonometers centimeters sounds like a French way to pronounce it maybe maybe Canadian I have no idea (laughs) Well, anyway, our first 40-milers will probably notice that there are a lot of things in the metric system and then a lot of things in the classic American inches, pounds, ounces system. I think it's called imperial. But it makes sense to be conversant in both. Get to know the metric system. Maybe live the metric lifestyle or join the metric movement because it's an important part of backpacking.
1: And I think America may get there someday. Uh, growing up, my dad indoctrinated me in the idea that, uh, you know, the metric system, he, he referred to it as mucky mucks. It was just his opinion of the metric system. And, of course, there's no reason for that. Like, it's just two different ways of measuring something. They both work. But I guess it was sort of this um, American pride of holding on to something that is sort of almost unique to America. There's just a couple other small countries in the world that use the American system. But I just see that uh, generation after generation, a little bit of a switch is made with each new generation. So, you know, we'll see.
0: Back in episode 68 of the first 40 miles, we talked about the downsides of carrying a hydration bladder. Now, I don't know if Josh and I are quite ready to switch to hydration bladders, but we do want to share the top five reasons to carry a hydration bladder, also known as a hydration reservoir, if you're tired of saying the word bladder over and over. (laughs) And we want to thank those who helped us compile today's top five list.
1: We got lots of great comments from our listeners on Facebook uh, after we asked for their experiences with hydration bladders. And the number one reason people carry a hydration bladder is because of the high capacity that they have. You know, instead of, say, a one-liter water bottle, you've got maybe three liters or more in a hydration bladder, all in that one container. On Facebook, Randy said that after a lifetime of using nothing but water bottles, he had finally purchased his first uh, water bladder. It was an Osprey 2.5 liter, and that was to give him water-hauling capacity to backpack the Joshua Tree National Park and other areas in the Mojave Desert. So he recognized he was going to be in very dry areas, and this would give him extra water-carrying capacity. The number two reason to carry a hydration bladder is for easy and frequent hydration. Mike on Facebook said that he found that when he hikes with Nalgene bottles, uh, he tends to not drink enough water because he's just too lazy to stop and pull out the water bottles and take a drink. And most backpacking packs now have been designed to hold uh, hydration bladders. So they've got a special uh, sleeve or pouch in the pack that's going to be right against your back where you can put in that hydration bladder. They've got a clip on the shoulder strap for the hose. So it's just all set up, ready to go for that hydration bladder.
0: Yeah, and it puts the tube right next to your mouth, and so you're always reminded to drink, which as Mike noted, in many conditions, it's easy to forget to drink, or if you're just plain lazy, it really is hard to remember to keep yourself hydrated because you don't always feel dehydrated.
1: The third benefit of a hydration bladder is that it works really well with gravity filters. Patrick on Facebook mentioned that he uses the MSR gravity filter. He just hooks that up to his hydration bladder, and he says he gets over a liter of water per minute. No pumping, no squeezing, anything. You just set it up and let the water flow through the filter into your bladder.
0: Now, <laughs> <laughs> okay, your reservoir into your
1: hydration reservoir. <laughs>
0: Okay, we're so juvenile. <laughs> no, um, a gravity filter is something that I would love to um, start using on family trips because we have six people and it would be great to just hang a gravity filter in a you know, big reservoir from a tree and get water for everyone. That'd be like six minutes and we'd have water for the whole family. That'd be great.
1: The number four benefit of a hydration bladder is that it's balanced water. And we're not talking about electrolytes or pH balance. We're talking about weight balance. Water is probably the heaviest thing you carry in your pack. A liter of water weighs a kilogram. Okay, we'll translate that for the non-metric people. Um, a liter of water, that's still metric. Come on. a quart. A quart weighs 2.2 2 pounds. So that adds up quick. And with a hydration bladder... It's going to be uh, in that hydration bladder sleeve in your pack, right against your back. So the heaviest, most dense stuff that you carry should be in the middle of your pack in terms of up, down, and left, right, and it should be towards your back. And that's right where the hydration bladder sleeve is in packs. So you get a nice, balanced, close-to-your-back carry of the heaviest thing that you're carrying. With water bottles, on the other hand, you know, you drink out of one, you've got maybe one on each side of your pack in those water bottle pouches, and you empty one of them over the course of a few hours, and now you've got no weight on one side, and you've still got a full water bottle on the other side of your pack. And, you know, you get more and more lopsided uh, with your weight balance. Of course, it means you can just alternate drinking out of one water bottle and then the other whenever you stop, but. With a hydration bladder, it's just always balanced.
0: The number five benefit of using a hydration bladder is that while they're not puncture proof, the repair is simple. So you can improvise with duct tape, tenacious tape, or seam seal, or you can just buy a patch kit for your specific hydration bladder. You could even sacrifice the patch kit that came with your sleeping pad, although I wouldn't recommend that because you'll end up needing it.
1: But what do you need more, water? Or a sleeping pad. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's a tough call.
0: Yeah. So definitely bring a repair kit for your hydration bladder. And as we mentioned back in episode 68, hydration bladders are pretty tricky to clean. So if you're looking for one that's a little bit easier to clean, we suggest a zip top hydration bladder. We also talked about how you shouldn't add things to your hydration bladder other than just water. Otherwise, bacteria is going to grow like crazy. And I recently saw an inline flavoring system. I think it's called Infuse. It's a brand new product. So we'll put the link for the inline hydration flavoring in the show notes so you can take a look at it.
1: And we'll reshare that Facebook post from two months ago on both Facebook and Twitter so you can read through the comments that came in as we talked about the cons of hydration bladders, but got lots of, you know, all these comments that that we mentioned today. There were many more great comments uh, about the benefits of hydration bladders.
0: Before we start today's Summit Gear Review, I wanted to explain how we come about doing gear reviews because we've actually had a lot of questions about this. There are two different ways in which we acquire products for reviews. And I think this is really important for our first 40 milers to know. First, we purchase products. So if we have a specific need in our family for gear, we'll do all of our research online and then we'll wait for a bubble in the budget and then typically drive down to ye old backpacky shop <laughs> and pick it up or we'll also do some, you know, smaller shopping on Amazon. Those items that we purchase are then put through their paces and they end up being featured in the Summit Gear Review.
1: So the Sony RX100 camera that we talked about on the uh, photography episode was a personal purchase after much research for something our family needed.
0: The second way we procure gear for reviews is by doing something called curating. So when I see a gap in our editorial calendar or a topic that I think needs attention, I'll put all of my energy toward finding what I think is the best item that fills that gap. And today's Summit Gear Review is the perfect example. While I was at the Winter Outdoor Retailer Show, I must have seen over a hundred shoe companies. And the one question that was in the back of my mind was, if I could only review one of these pairs of shoes for our first 40 milers, which pair would be the best fit. So I contacted Loa and they agreed to send me a pair of these shoes that we will be reviewing today. And you've probably heard the saying, with great gear comes great responsibility. Winston Churchill? Is that- I
1: haven't heard that you saying. You have not
0: heard that. Okay, each time we receive an item to review, hours and hours go into our review process, which is what our listeners know as the Summit Gear Review, which reviews gear based on structure, utility, mass, maintenance, investment, and trial. Curation is a deep process that we take seriously, and we really do everything we can to find relevant, innovative, interesting gear that we know you'll be excited about. So, for today's Summit Gear Review, we will be reviewing the Renegade 2 GTX Low Women's Shoes. And these are made by LOA. And there's a lot stuffed into that name. The GTX stands for Gore-Tex, the Low means that it's low-cut, and the WS means it's a women's shoe.
1: And the LOA Renegade 2 GTX Low also comes in a men's version.
0: It also comes in a non-GTX or non gore tex version, and that's called the Renegade 2 LL. LL stands for leather-lined, so you won't have the Gore-Tex lining, which if you're backpacking in a desert environment, leather-lined would be great. You don't need the Gore-Tex like we do in the Northwest. The upper is Nubbock leather which means it's going to be long lasting and durable. Nubbock is a top grain cattle leather and it has kind of a velvety buffed feel to it and it's really resistant to the scuffs and scratches that typically happen on the trail. The footbed is climate controlled and so your feet can breathe and they won't overheat. These are special insoles that I guess kind of counterbalance the Gore-Tex. Gore-Tex has gotten a lot more breathable in the last few years, but this just adds to it. So your feet won't overheat in these shoes, even though they're exceptionally waterproof. These shoes have a Vibram sole, which does amazing things for absorbing shock and providing grip. And you'll feel that when you're hiking on unstable surfaces. These shoes are super grippy.
1: You and I both have a pair of hiking boots that uh, do not use a Vibram sole. You have a pair of Keens and I have a pair of Anus. Um, I can tell the difference. Like Vibram makes that much of a difference. It really just has this amazing ability to not slip on any surface. And you and I were talking about Vibram the other day. We were just kind of looking up the company. It's fascinating. It was founded way back in 1934 to make rubber outsoles for boots. It was founded by an Italian, Vitale Bramani. So that's Vitale V and Bramani Brahm, so Vibram, there you go. And it was uh financed by Pirelli, the guy behind Pirelli tires.
0: What's up with Pirelli tires? I don't know what Pirelli tires are, sorry.
1: Oh, they're just famous for tires. Um especially in racing. Really? Yeah. And so if you've got a pair of Pirelli's on your car, you are set. I mean you're like You're going for the racetrack. This
0: is like having Pirellis on your feet. Yeah. That is so cool. Well, now I'm excited. Wow. Thanks. Vroom, vroom. (laughs) Um, These shoes are made on a women's specific last. So it's not the old Trinket and pinket shoes. These shoes are designed for women and the men's shoes are designed for men.
1: It's taking me a minute to absorb. Shrink it and pink it.
0: Oh, that's what they used to do. <laughs>
1: that's perfect. Yeah, take men's stuff, just make it smaller, and turn it pink.
0: Yeah, sorry. It's not a Heather original. Someone else said it, and I stole it from them. But That's great. Yeah, I know. It just It, it defines what used to happen with women's clothing and women's shoes perfectly. For utility, these shoes are trail ready, right out of the box. They are not designed to be broken in like shoes back in the olden days. They're ready to go and you can hike a couple miles to get your feet accustomed to the shoes. You don't need to break anything in in the shoes. Just get your feet used to the amount of space that they'll take up in the shoe and how you feel on the trail. Now when Josh was shopping for shoes he tried on some loas and he also tried on some anus. You probably tried on some other ones too but notice that the loas tended to be a little more stiff than other shoes. Um, What was your experience when you finally bought your Anus?
1: The Lois were uncomfortably stiff to me. I felt like my feet had been put in a cast. And uh, I tried on several other brands, and there were a few other brands that also felt too stiff for me. Um, The Brooks Cascadia's are a running shoe. They were really popular when I was shopping for my shoes. Uh, But then I landed on the Anus, uh, partly because they were 50% off. So I got a great deal on them and they felt comfortable to me, but they were still, um, I felt like they were stiff enough to hold the load of my pack.
0: As far as mass goes, these shoes weigh two pounds, that's one pound per shoe, and they're completely leather uppers, so you don't have any mesh parts. And that's part of the reason why they weigh two pounds per pair. It's all that leather and you have the really thick Vibram soles.
1: For maintenance, uh, Loa reminds us that real leather is a living material. Leather has these small glands in it that help to keep it moist by producing um, kind of an oily substance. So it prevents the leather from drying out and it keeps it soft. Of course, that's when it's on the animal. But once the leather is dead and it's off of the animal, it no longer has that living supply of sebum to keep it soft and pliable.
0: So for maintenance on the trail, each night when you're done hiking and especially on wet days remove the insole and open the boot all the way to let it dry this is especially important on multi-day trips this is something you can do with any shoe doesn't matter if it's leather or not but it's especially important with leather shoes And then when you get back home, that's when you can use the leather waxes or the creams to restore the softness of the leather without interfering with its breathability. And Loa recommends never using oil or fat to soften up your boots because that will actually cause the boot to lose its breathability. I guess it still makes it waterproof, but it won't be breathable and waterproof at the same time. And they call that the gum boot effect maybe because it makes your leather kind of gummy. So don't use fatter oil. As far as investment goes, these shoes are $210. And the question in my mind always is, how long will they last? And the answer is always, your mileage may vary. It really depends on how many miles you put into them, how you treat them. These are meant to last for a long time. They're really high quality leather. A lot of care has gone into designing these shoes and there are really great materials in these shoes.
1: So let's talk about trial. You've been wearing these shoes on a few of our recent outings.
0: Well, before the last couple trips that we've gone on, I had been using my running shoes and I was really used to the bounce that they had and the flexibility and I loved that they were so lightweight. And also over the summer, Josh and I took it a step further and wore barefoot running shoes for most of the summer. So to go from nearly nothing to a pair of solid hiking shoes was kind of like going from homeschooling to a private military academy. There was some serious adjustment. And these shoes did take a couple miles to get used to. But now I have the feel for them. And the thing that surprised me the most was They were stiffer than I really was expecting them to be but I hiked for miles all without blisters and I think it's because of the climate control footbed and the breathable Gore-Tex. Another thing that really surprised me about the Loa Renegade 2 was that they allowed me to have greater balance and stability than I thought I'd have. I was really used to the floppy flexibility of the shoes that I used last summer which I felt really strengthened my feet and Maybe that's what made it possible to be able to wear these Loa Renegades, you know, the low cut version without any kind of angle support.
1: Well, we've now reviewed two hiking boots that I see as virtually direct competitors to each other. Uh, so there's these Loas. And then, way back in episode number two of the first 40 Miles podcast, we reviewed the Keen uh, Coven WP women's shoe, which is also made for hiking and is also waterproof. So you own both, the Loas and the Keens. Any thoughts on what distinguishes them from each other?
0: Yeah, I don't know if I would call them direct competitors because I feel like uh, the Loas are a solid hiking boot slash shoe. I mean, you look at it and you know you're going to be able to put on 10 to 15 miles in a day with a 30 pound pack like they're really meant for grabbing the ground and giving you some really great stability and balance the keens are lighter weight in a way i would say they're closer to my running shoes than they are to the loa renegades
1: okay so both of them are waterproof but the keens are more like a running shoe feel the loas are more like a hiking boot feel except that it's still low cut um Tread differences, uh, a smaller tread or a, or a more shallow tread yeah, on the Keens. Right. Uh, more of that, not quite like a boot lug on the Loas, but definitely a more pronounced tread on the bottom. And as you said, because they have the Vibram soles, they're noticeably more grippy.
0: I feel like the Loa Renegade 2 GTX Low has three strengths, and that's an incredible marriage of waterproof and breathability great temperature regulation inside the shoe and a great fit right out of the box with very little time required for my feet to feel at home. For today's backpack hack of the week, sap removal with stuff that's already in your pack. So if you're going to be in the forest, there's one thing that you're going to have a hard time avoiding. and That's sap, also known as pitch, pine pitch. smells great, but it's a mess.
1: Last fall when we went to the Rogue River, we found this perfect camping spot under pine trees on a bed of pine needles. It was just so soft and lovely. And I just sat down and put my back against a pine tree and just (laughs) took a nap. And it's those kinds of situations where it's really easy to pick up some sap you know, from the needles that have fallen or from the bark on the tree and get this stuff stuck to your clothes or to the bottom of your tent or your pack. And it's pretty tough to get off.
0: So the tips that we're gonna give you today are just to get the sap off of your hands. You're not gonna to wanna to use these on your gear because you don't want your pack to smell like peanut butter as you walk down the trail. So what do you already have in your pack that you can use to remove sap? Well, if you brought along rubbing alcohol or hand sanitizers, those remove sap really well. As does lavender essential oil or any of the essential oils. You can also use mayonnaise, peanut butter, bacon grease, and baking soda is a mild abrasive that can also help remove sap. So I'd love to hear from our listeners which ones have you tried.
1: Just a tangent here. If we're uh, renaming the show, the first forty kilometers then what do we call our listeners?
0: Oh my goodness. The first 40 kilometerians? Oh
1: yeah, the first 40 kilometers.
0: The first 40 clicks? (laughs) Key-lowers? I can see this is gonna be a problem.
1: I think that after less than one episode, (laughs) we have established that we will still be the first 40 miles.
0: I think that works. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Henry David Thoreau.
1: In the book Walden, he said, every morning was a cheerful invitation to make my life of equal simplicity, and I may say innocence, with nature herself.
0: That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this podcast, then get outside or start planning your next adventure. We'll see you next time on the first 40 kilometers. Miles.
1: Take two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can do this.
1: The third benefit of a hydration bladder is that it works really well with hydration hydration
0: so good for drinking, yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i i' I'm, I want to see how grippy it was.